Mr. President, uh, dear colleagues, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for this uh, kind invitation. It is a pleasure and a great honor for me to be here in this prestigious occasion and to have the opportunity to present uh, to you some thoughts about uh, the present situation of democracy in our continent. I have prepared a very philosophical discourse, so that there will be time for a more practical discussion afterwards, if you are interested in it. My starting point is the return of fear. A general pessimism about the human condition stalks the globe as we approach the end of the second decade of the 21st century. Much is made of the fact that people are feeling threatened and therefore feel afraid. And fear lead, uh, leads them to support the politics of security, of protection, politics, in other words, uh, of closure rather than of openness. This is not a recent phenomenon. Some of the most important figures of Western political thought, I would like to mention Machiavelli, Hobbes and Carl Schmitt, for example, have emphasized uh, the deep, indeed inextricable connection between politics and the fear of death, and the extent to which the modern state, from its ideology to its structure, was founded on this idea. The ideas of these authors remind us that politics is, above all, also an association against the death, and that when our politics cannot effectively protect our material lives, there is an inevitable increase in the sense of insecurity and mistrust. And precisely because there is this deep connection between fear and politics, fear can be instrumentalized. As Friedrich Neumann has shown, there exists both a true anxiety and a neurotic anxiety, the latter generated by imaginary dangers which are depicted as being devastating. This neurotic anxiety, such as developed during the 19th century with regard to an imagined Jewish conspiracy, is a manufacturer anxiety, designed to cause the ego to regress to a state of such confusion that it feels driven to follow the herd, to identify emotionally with a charismatic leader, to give up any attempts at the autonomous exercise of reason. The unprecedented condition of contemporary people who suffer from loneliness and the loss of identity and are thus in constant research of connections and of ways in which to reclaim or recreate their identities makes it all the easier to manufacture anxiety and fear. Nowadays, the objects of our neurotic anxiety are in some countries Italy, for example, immigrants and foreigners who are sometimes perceived as threats to the health and safety of our communities. Once again, as when racist ideologies were first emerging in the 19th century, some people are spreading the idea that the decadence of the rich countries is linked to the presence or arrival of foreigners who are contaminating our lives, polluting them, poisoning them, that they are 
carriers of sickness and disease. Once again, the politics of hygiene is being invoked. In this regard, a primary connection between politics and truth is clearly revealed. In order to manufacture fear, facts have to be negated or distorted. Neurotic anxiety can only be overcome by constant reference to the reality of phenomena through an evidence-based methodology. Although, sadly, we must acknowledge that today the public has lost a considerable degree of faith in this methodology, we cannot afford to resign ourselves to this situation. In all forms of public discourse, back to reality must remain an imperative. But this, unfortunately, is not enough. The fear of immigrants stems not only from the ancient, baseless, racist fear manufactured, now as always, out of thin air. People are afraid of immigrants because their arrival is perceived as a threat to one of the fundamental rights upon which our social order has always rested, that is the right of previous occupancy. In the systems that have governed this millennium, the first to arrive, whether in a particular territory or in a particular social position, acquires a right to its possession and any subsequent arrivals, whoever they are and whatever their ethnicity or religion, is seen as a potential competitor. And a competitor not only in concrete terms, but also as regards rights. Because whoever asserts the right of previous of original occupancy knows full well that Alongside and prior to this right of occupancy, there exists the universal disposition of the Earth's resources and therefore the right of all to access a portion of these resources. And this is based upon the original, an original mitzain, in German being with, co-being, in, our, in other words, uh, the fact that everybody belongs to a common humanity. The right of the previous occupancy is in this sense a derivative right. It is based on the concept that all human beings have an equal potential right to occupy parts of the earth, which has been given to all as a common good, and that this right is realized in the very act of occupation. Thus, the right of previous occupancy is based on the prior and the original equal right of each individual to a space in which to live. From this perspective, the arrival of someone new is perceived not only as the arrival of another who lacks rights, but also as the arrival of someone who originally possessed the same right as I do to occupy a portion of the earth, wherever that may be. This is why he or she is seen by the first occupant not just as a danger, but also as a competitor. And faced with this danger, the strategy is to repulse the newcomers, to ostracize them, to discriminate against them. It is the very fact of this original equality before the law from which their equal right to access resources derives that it is denied. It is precisely because our civilization is aware of this dynamic 
which particularizes a universal that we are constantly attempting to recognize the right of previous occupancy while at the same time tempering it. The call for the universal disposal of resources, cosmopolitan law, the common good and other universal human rights are all manifestations of this tension. Human history, however, provides ample evidence of how the process of previous occupancy is usually turned into a mechanism for exclusive appropriation, its universalist origins abandoned and discrimination established. This inherent dynamic of the right of previous occupancy strikes deep emotional chords, and we ignore it at our peril both because, as I have said, it affects one of the cardinal principles of our coexistence and because its uncontrolled deployment can be devastating. Who beside us if we underestimate fear and its possible manipulation? Let us now try to delve more deeply into the human condition today. What are we afraid of? Our fears are many and various. Every continent and social group has its own particular fears and to imagine. Otherwise, it's not just difficult, but a wrong-headed and dangerous simplification. That said, to postulate a common or at least a dominant thread can, I feel, help us in our discussion. Today's fear of the dispossession of the self is, this is my interpretation and my proposal, one such a commonality. Self-mastery has been one of the prime objectives of both Western and Eastern culture throughout the centuries. Although many different methods have been attempted to attain this goal of the same self-mastery, all share the idea that the realization of one own true existence and the attainment of happiness are only possible through self-discovery, self-knowledge and self-fulfillment within one life. In other words, in a set of actions that affirm or negate or transcend the self depending on the particular ethical and philosophical view adhered to. Underpinning all these views is the idea of self-mastery, in other words, possession of the self. Perhaps it is also because of this constant emphasis on self-knowledge and self-possession as the way to realization in the world that the I, the ego, today seems so uncertain and disorientated in the face of what it sees as the greatest of all dangers, that is, the dispossession of the self. Fear of dispossession assumes different forms. One can be dispossessed of one's body, as happens to so many battered women, the migrants who are violated, all the victims of human trafficking, some of whom have their very organs harvested, to all who are ill and whose lives are prolonged against their will when they have lost their ability to express their own desires, to all who are ill and want to live but others, the relatives or the friends, allow them to die because they are tired of caring for them 
or want to get their hands on an in inheritance. One can be dispossessed of one's wealth, of one's work, of one's future, as is happening to an unthinkable number of young people, for example, in my country today. One can be dispossessed of one's identity, one's environment, one's food, language, traditions by cynical actors who dominate today's unregulated markets, commodify everything and homogenize or erase qualities and differences which have no market value. One can be dispossessed of one's dignity, interiority, privacy, invaded by external observers, controllers, watchdogs, merchants of souls. And one can be frightened of being dispossessed of one's savings by the banks or by the mysterious machinations of international finance. One can fear being dispossessed of one's land or hard-earned situation in life, dispossessed by the newcomers, the young or migrants who threaten our right of previous occupancy in time and space, or parasites who have never done a day's work and who envy our well-being, and of course, those inefficient, corrupt governments. We are frightened of being dispossessed of our very right and ability to decide our own destiny and the destiny of our communities by technology, by bureaucracy, by the state, by Europe, by the international order, by, in fact, any and all of the myriad of entities that control our lives from distant places. This general sense of dispossession has led to a widespread fear and a general retreat into isolationism. People are seeking to protect themselves from external forces and somehow to shield whatever they feel remains of their selfhood. Maybe the personal or family or tribal or national self in the conviction that the world, that history, wants to sweep us all away and that we, every one of us, is in the hands of others. So the overriding fear of our times, this is my interpretation, can perhaps be described as a fear of a general dispossession, the fear of being controlled by others. And this fear leaves us gazing out through sullen, suspicious eyes at the world around us. Suspicion is the most common reaction to a sense of dispossession. Suspicion which spills into interpersonal relationships, of course, but above all, poisons the social structure and its institutions. Suspicion and sometimes intolerance. Nothing new here one could say dispossession, being in the hands of others, are phrases that lead us to a term which we know all too well, alienation, to become disaffected, to belong to others. We are dealing with a phenomenon that can be traced throughout human history in both interpersonal and social dynamics, not new and indeed somehow integral to the very story of the human spirit. As Hegel's powerful analysis set out to demonstrate, alienation is not only negative, the, the oppression and deprivation of the human spirit, it is also a time of necessary setback before the liberation of the individual or of a society cannot take place. 
a constant phenomenon one can say although in modern and particularly in capitalist society it is unusually pronounced not just a pathology of the system but the way in which the system itself functions by uprooting and dispossessing and thus creating the conditions for new conquests at the cost, however, of untold alienation and the relegation of countless people to irrelevance. This analysis is not only Karl Marx, numerous other observers, both conservative and liberal, have reached the same conclusion. Placing their face in the responses to the wild capitalism of the 19th century and to that kind of alienation, the institution of democracy, state intervention and welfare systems, mechanism for market regulation, many people underestimated the forces of alienation in contemporary society. Only now, on the verge of being overwhelmed by global market forces, are they waking up only to be almost paralyzed by the enormous level of alienation, of dispossession of self, whether real or feared, that surround us? Most guilty of this underestimation are the progressives, the very people who more than any others analyzed and devised effective strategies to overcome the phenomenon of alienation. Strategies born out of enormous struggle and suffering, whose successes were due to an extraordinary human commitment to solidarity. The manufacturers of fear the shock troops of the dispossessors were thus allowed to run rampant while progressive, unable to devise new, genuinely emancipatory policies for those who were being steadily dispossessed, were caught in the middle between the merchants of alienation on one side and their stubborn opponents on the other side. They made no real effort to understand what was actually happening and didn't know how to reimagine their previous victory, how to create a more sophisticated balance between democracy and the market, a more human order for economic and social relations in this era of globalization and finance capitalism. Globalization can, of course, open up huge opportunities, but only if there are rigorous mechanisms in place that are strong enough to withstand the immense pressures exerted by global actors. The human governance of a first needs time a more progressive and sophisticated balance between capitalism and democracy cannot be achieved in an instant. The evolution of the emerging forces shatters old concepts our long-inhabited carapaces, and before a new order can be built, humanity is left exposed to the rapacious greed of the predators among us. It means little to say that in the long term the benefits of the system will be shared by all when the present is so full of distress and social dislocation. One of the progressive strengths in the past was their ability to combine visions of the future with short-term strategies. This ensured that the whole generations did not have to be sacrificed in the building of a system which would only be in place when they were too old or too dead to enjoy it. The blending of prophetic vision with historical gradualism was key to 
the progressives' past victories without a sense of history, in other words, it is hard to be progressive. Being open to the future is necessary. Being open to the hope that human activity over time is not entirely meaningless, purposeless, useless or downright harmful, but can instead make our lives better. Today, the sense of history seems to have vanished. We lack not only a sense of gradualism, but also, it seems, any clear ideas of what might constitute a prophetic vision, what sort of world we want to build. What can we do in this situation? If there is a new departure point, I suggest it is to reaffirm the principle of self-belonging, common to all human beings. The fact that everyone belongs to themselves and to nobody or nothing else. This is a more radical principle than that of self-determination which is usually understood within the sphere of action. Here, in the principle of self-belonging, the intention is to affirm that the being of each person is inalienable. It is not in the hands of others, nor can it be put in the hands of others, just like personal freedom, which vanishes in the instant that it is ceded to another. Nobody can command another completely. Human beings do not derive their meaning from other human beings. The essence of their being lies within. It is within that the dignity and thus the inviolability of the human being originates. To affirm the principle of self-belonging, that is, to possess oneself, is of course to do the exact opposite of dispossessing oneself. It is not clearly just a question of affirming principles in a detached world of ideas and values. This alone would not be an adequate response to the fear that surrounds us. It is a question of taking action, of really safeguarding the legal and social rights of the human being in all areas of life, though by strengthening the tools needed to protect people, starting with the most fragile, from physical abuse, and to ensure that their personal spheres are protected from criminal invasion, including that perpetrated by speculators. This also includes countering the total commodification of labor, which aims to separate the provision of a service from the personal relationship and to obliterate countless products of human activity everything from food products to intellectual creation, from bank savings to personal and family enterprises. This is not a question, clearly, of denying the need for a moment of objectification and communication of the self, of its activity and the products that result from this activity, the intention is rather to limit the alienating and destructive effects of this objectification in order to increase the realizable potential of the self. In other words, it is not the insertion of the self into the external world that is a destructive thing, a source of anxiety. It is the loss of control of oneself 
that accompanies this process. Not the fact of being with others, of being for others, suffering for others, but the experience of being completely in the hands of others and not being able to possess or repossess oneself as happens in forms of modern and sometimes advanced slavery. In this sense, the principle that every human being belongs to him or herself is not an individualistic one, quite the opposite. The human being is born and develops in a literal state of initially also biological connection, the co-being, cradled within a web of nurturing human relationships. Nobody can be born, nobody can develop outside an existing relational context. Even the movement of individuation, of child's individuation first of all, and thus the awareness and mastery of self irreducible to the sum of the relations which has produced it a unique being who is, so to say, extraterritorial, is only possible within a web of relationships. One becomes a person. One attains self-belonging through positive social relations which recognize through a dialectical process the otherness of the other, the irreducibility of each. And maybe this is why, and I believe it is important to recognize this, the fear of dispossession becomes more acute in times stalked by loneliness and neglect, when to fear of loss of self, to the fear of loss of self is added the fear of losing one's affective ties. We all want to be recognized in our otherness, in our difference from everyone else. We all want equality of respect for our bodies, for our personalities, our liberty. We all want to have the opportunity to create relationships and ties of solidarity. On this basis, recognition and equal respect, a politics of equality can be built. Not a politics which seeks to equalize and thus deny difference, but rather one which is based in the struggle against all forms of discrimination. This is the aspiration for justice, that it is intrinsic to humanity, the yearning for the just recognition of our being and activity, and the need to be respected by all other human beings. The principle of self-belonging can thus be understood as a convergence point between various anthropological traditions, both religiously inspired and secular. We see it in, of course, many different forms and subject to very different interpretations, from self-ownership to Selbstgehörigkeit, in both the Christian tradition of personalism from Aquinas to Guadini and the liberal and libertarian tradition from Locke to Kant to Nozick, in the tradition of humanistic socialism and in women's reflection and practices about the self-agency principle. Nor does the principle of self-belonging isolate the human subjects from nature understood as the biological substrate of which they are constituted and as the environment which nourishes them. On the contrary, in retaking possession of their selves, the subjects also take possession of the nature of which they are formed and recognize themselves as part of that nature. The principle of self-belonging thus allows for the affirmation of both the centrality 
of civil and social rights and the crucial importance of rights linked to humanity's connection with nature and the environment. For years, we have considered social rights to be secondary, adjunctive, forgetting that their content, access to vital goods, vital goods such as food, clothing, shelter, health, education, has always, both philosophically and within the historical context, been a precondition for all claims to and the enjoyment of fundamental civil and political rights. The fact that access to these basic rights is a necessary precondition for the exercise of other rights is very evident on the anthropological plane. Unless we are alive, we cannot express ourselves freely. Morally, therefore, situations in which poverty or disease threaten people's very existence establish absolute obligations. Hans Jonas, a German philosopher, expresses this powerfully using the example of a tiny baby who by its very existence and its total inability to survive alone creates a situation in which everyone around it, it is absolutely obliged to provide for its survival. The case of the injured person on the roadside is the same. Here too we have an absolute obligation to stop and help. This in injunction is so strong in our civilization that indifference is considered culpable and failure to help is a crime. So access to the opportunity to feed ourselves, to receive adequate medical care, and to build effective and family relationships are all clearly preconditions for the exercise of all vital functions and therefore for our very existence. But if the principle of self-belonging is a dynamic one, if our self-appropriation is a process in time, this process develops through an enriching of knowledge and of experience, that is, through knowing and doing. In this sense, the principle of self-belonging inevitably involves a strong claim to the right to search for truth, to education and to work, since without this it is delusional to imagine genuine paths to, to emancipation. Perhaps nowadays we pay insufficient attention to the critical importance of the search for truth, of education and work on the anthropological and not only the social and political level. In the previous centuries, the centrality of the rights to education and work was obvious. They were seen as fundamental, not only to a just society, but also and above all to the process of self-realization. Universal access to these two basic rights should, I believe, return to the top of the agendas of today's progressive movements. The affirmation of civil and social rights cannot, of course, be left to individuals and social movements. Institutions and the state have also a crucial role to play. Here we see that the principle of self-belonging as a universal right cannot merely be declared as an individualistic and passive concept. It requires the active regulation of economic and social life, particularly for the reasons given above, in order to guarantee the rights to health, education and work. My 
final point is self-belonging and democracy. In political terms, this principle of self-belonging corresponds to the fundamental principle of democracy, understood as that of the self-belonging and self-government of a community of individuals who aspire to the recognition of their basic liberty and respect for the equal dignity. Just as individual fear, the dispossession of self, and the condition of being in the hands of others, today's communities and peoples are at risk of being deprived of the right and capacity to govern themselves. We are therefore called upon to reassert at the social level the principle of self-belonging, relaunching the ideal of democracy on this basis at all levels, from the local to the international, in order that every process which is necessary of objectification and opening up to the other does not bring with it a permanent loss of control over our lives and the lives of our communities. I do not here deny the need for wide societies and for opportunities to go beyond the traditional boundaries of our birth communities, i.e. usually our native countries, nor still less do I deny the need for mediation between the self and organs of governments represented at the political level by association parties, institutions. The crucial thing is to ensure that the individual can influence the government of his or her community at any and all levels have, in other words, the possibility at all times to be a political subject, not just an object, an actor with a power, however small, to save, shape the decisions that affect his or her life. In this way, the fact that each person is an end in themselves is preserved in the power relations between individuals, being a subject and not only an object. The infinite dignity of each person is revealed, not only when he or she is an object to be protected, but also when he or she is a co-deciding subject in matters which affect their lives, whether at the local level or internationally. The future of democracy depends on the preservation of a genuinely open space for co-decision to ensure that democracy, the highest form of self-belonging, does not itself become a place of alienation, thus risking democratic disaffection and an illusory escape into other forms of discourse and authoritarian or populist political structures. The current socio-political landscape calls urgently for the reaffirmation of democracy as a system based on more freedom, equality between all citizens and between the governed and their governments, and reasoned debate. This means not only representative elections, that is, democracy by appointment, but also forms of collective decision-making, participatory democracy, through processes of information, discussion, and deliberation, in the sense of deliberative democracy. Just as human subjectivity is constantly changing, its moral, cultural and social dynamics are just that never static, so to political subjectivity is always to be changed and nourished 
to avoid the proliferation of phenomena of political alienation and political disaffection fatal to democracy itself. And here again, the search for truth plays a fundamental role both for the individual self-realization and for the democratic deliberation. As Jürgen Habermas stated, a post-truth democracy cannot be any longer a democracy. Today's retreat into nationalism in the face of Europeist and internationalist ideals has partly been caused by the growing sense of a loss of control and even the impossibility of influencing the governance of a public sphere which has become so vast and apparently distant and remote. If, however, we consider the fact that the nature of contemporary phenomena from the global economy to tourism, from environmental issues to migration, is transnational. It is evident that the democratic challenge cannot be met by a regression to lower levels, especially for European small national states. Instead, we must try to foster the democratization and constitutionalization of power at the European and international level, strengthening, not weakening, the forms, however limited and sometimes contradictory they may be, of international democracy that have so far been established. Although human rights protection, for example, at the international level is at times chaotic and ineffective, the efforts to affirm them have, whatever their immediately success or apparent failures, serve to strengthen them, precisely because they have affirmed the fundamental idea that fundamental rights are not entirely in the hands of the national legislatures and governments. The irony, of course, is that these national bodies are at the moment the only ones that can ensure that international rights are actually respected. This clearly demonstrates the importance of the cosmopolitan law which acts as a complement to existing law within and between states, as Immanuel Kant has argued. And it is perhaps uh, on this common humanity, which is the basis of each individual's humanity, obliges us all to treat each other with humanity and grounds the cosmopolitan view in this perspective, we must again insist in defining a progressive anthropological perspective in this era of resurgent nationalisms and alarming politics of discrimination. In so doing, we must be careful not to turn humanity into an ideology that is imposed on the citizenry or a weapon to brandish in the political struggle a war in the name of humanity. We must not succumb to the illusion that the whole of humanity can or should become a single political subject. The secret is again to be able to look at the other, to respect the difference and the diversity and recognize ourselves. In these fearful times, uh, we must rediscover not only the principle of self-belonging, but also the fact that each human being shares his or her humanity with everyone else. From the anthropological perspective, this is the strongest legacy left to us by the great religious and secular traditions which have always cherished the democratic vision when racial discrimination threatens it. Living together 
is not easy. Effort is required to co-be. And this effort is often expressed in the fear of the other. On the other hand, it is important to recognize that this co-be can heal our fear of loneliness and isolation and thus give individuals new energy and hope for life. And this is precisely the expansive, optimistic energy with which we can defeat hatred, oppression and suffering. This happens wherever the sense of co-being is grounded in the inextinguishable liberty of each individual, in the recognition that everyone is unique and in the according of equal respect to all. This combination of recognition and respect needs to have policies and systems in place which can guarantee its functioning. It requires that issue of social justice be taken more seriously. This extra commitment to social justice, when made by each human being, can, even at a time when the fear of the dispossession of self is so strongly felt, restore to society and to its institutions the most profound sense and thus can reconcile them with the deepest aspirations of everyone. Thank you very much for your attention.